We welcome you. This is message eight in our series through the book of 1 John. We've entitled the whole series, Vital Signs. We're looking at the spiritual vital signs that reveal we have eternal life. That's the whole theme of 1 John. It was written so that we would know we have eternal life. The, the theme verse for 1 John, John wrote this, and he gives us his stated purpose there in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. It's on your outlines. Let's read it out loud together. Can we do this? Starting with, I write these things. Ready? Here we go. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Pretty important to know you have eternal life. And the book shares with us multiple reasons how we can know we have eternal life. We call these reasons vital signs, the indicators of spiritual life. How do you know you have physical life? You check your vital signs, right? Check your pulse. Oh, I can feel my heart beating. I'm physically alive. How do you know you're spiritually alive? You need to look at your spiritual vital signs. If the spiritual vital signs are there, you will have eternal life. If the spiritual vital signs aren't there, you have to go, am I a Christian? Am I saved? Because anyone who's a Christian, who's saved, who has spiritual life, eternal life, these vital signs show themselves. They're self-evident. We've looked at seven so far. Fellowship. All Christians have fellowship with God and other Christians. Walking in the light. Christ-likeness. All Christians resemble Jesus to a degree. Spiritual growth. All Christians grow spiritually, loving not the world. All Christians possess an innate anti-love for the sinful system of this world. The Holy Spirit's anointing. All Christians have the Holy Spirit within who guides them. A purifying hope. All Christians possess a hope that purifies. And this morning, vital sign number eight, doing what is right. Can you repeat that after me? Doing what is right. How do you know if you possess eternal life? Answer, you will tend toward doing what is right versus tending toward doing what is wrong. If you're spiritually alive, you'll find yourself more and more and more doing what is right and less and less and less of doing what is wrong. That salvation we receive as part of our eternal life, the, the power, and watch this, also the desire to want to do what is right and, and to shun that which is wrong. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. One of the things that goes is this desire to follow evil. And one of the things that comes is the desire to follow God, to follow righteousness, to choose that which is right. Uh, we looked about at this a little while ago in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and, and verses 5 and 6. John says, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. That is, if you're a Christian, you're going to walk like Jesus walked. Not perfectly. But there's going to be a doing what is right, like Jesus did what is right. Now let's read about this vital sign of doing what is right in contrast to doing what is wrong, which characterizes a person who doesn't have eternal life. Let's read about this in 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, an incredible scripture this morning. And what I want to give you from this passage are two primary things, two reasons why Christians do what is right. I mean, why do Christians do what is right, like Jesus? Why do Christians seek to live a righteous life? Two reasons. Number one, we do what is right because of Jesus' ongoing work in our lives. That's the first reason. I mean, do we do what is right because we have this super innate goodness in and of ourselves apart from Jesus? No, 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 no. A Christian is someone who does what is right only because Christ is in our lives. Apart from Jesus being in our lives, we would only tend toward doing that which is wrong all the time or choosing sin. All the time. We tend toward doing what is right because of one reason. Because of Jesus' ongoing work in our lives, what he has done and what he's continuing to do. You say, well, what is it that Jesus has done and what is it that he's continuing to do in my life? Well, John begins with a basic statement about sin, you'll notice. Notice if you would. There there we are in verse 4. Everyone, John says, who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, in the Bible, there's all sorts of terms used for what sin is. Missing the mark, falling short, it's evil. But notice the phrase John uses, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking the law. The law originally was the Ten Commandments. Then it turned to be the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, then the whole Old Testament. Really, the law is all of God's Word, the whole Bible and sin, it's like God has, God has a standard, and he's drawn a line in the sand, so to speak. The whole Bible reveals God's righteous law. And sin is breaking the law. It's crossing the line. That's sin. That's missing the mark of absolute perfection. And then John says, and it's also lawlessness, which is an attitude of disregard for God's law. And when I think of lawlessness, I don't know, I'm sure all sorts of different pictures come to mind but I, I really kind of think of Bonnie and Clyde. In the 1930s, they, they perpetrated all sorts of multiple bank robberies. They killed nine uh, police officers. They just didn't care. I mean, they were eventually ambushed and killed in Louisiana. But John says, sin is lawlessness. It's where I just don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do regardless of the consequences. And beloved, don't we see this today? I mean, have you turned on your television lately? Sin is anarchy. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is looting. Sin is a disregard for God's law. Read Romans 13. All of our police departments are instituted by God as His authority. Yes, 
Human institutions sometimes abuse their authority. They do. But what we are seeing in our society is nothing but sin gone rampant. And Satan is behind it all, as we're going to learn this morning. Sin is lawlessness. Now, it takes on different forms. Certainly it does. But it's lawless. And guess what? That spirit of lawlessness used to be in you. It used to be in me. It used to reign in our lives before we knew Jesus. John then transitions, and he now talks about a believer's life that's different than an unbeliever who's dominated by lawlessness. And he talks about the Lord's work in our life in verse 5, and he says, but you, in contradistinction to being in lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. In other words, Jesus' work, his ongoing work in our lives, is that when he is present, he takes away our sins. Lawlessness doesn't reign. Remember John said in John 1.29, John the Baptist, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? The sin of the world. And he's done that in your life if you're a believer. Now, how does Jesus take away our sins? We need to talk about this a little bit. First, he became our sin bearer and our substitute. This is the first way. Jesus went to that cross. And in going to the cross, he bore our sins. And he also became our substitute. Someone needed to go to the cross and die for sins. And rather than us doing that, Jesus did that for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin. Jesus had zero sin, perfect, to be sin for us. Imagine that. He's our sin bearer. So that in him, when we believe in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Why did Jesus die on a cross so we wouldn't have to? We call this the great substitution. He took our place on that cross. I used to show this illustration when I was a youth pastor, but I find it's powerful for adults, and maybe you'll never forget it. Imagine this coat as being representative of your sin, the sin that you've accumulated during your whole life. All of us have a coat of sin. You have a coat of sin, I have a coat of sin. Every single sin you've ever um, experienced has been recorded, the Bible says. And it's placed onto this coat. You wear this coat. You're embarrassed about this coat. You would never want everyone in this room to hear about your sin. Everything you've done, everything you've said, all your motives are here. When you believe on Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you look to the cross, you trust in Jesus, and I'll play Jesus here in this part, the sin of your coat gets placed on Jesus' shoulders. He takes upon the cross all of your sin. The sin of your life gets nailed to the cross. And in exchange, Jesus gives you a different coat. It's a white coat. And he cloaks you in a cloak of righteousness. That's how Jesus takes away sin. That's called justification. God declaring you righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. When you believed on him, that's credited to your accounts. You are considered righteous. That's how he initially takes away our sin. But the fact is this, and by the way, I've given you a great verse about justification there. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're made rights. But watch this. The fact is this. We still sin, don't we? Even as Christians, we still fall into lawlessness. We still fall short. So how else does God take away our sin? 
Well, Jesus also takes away our sin, not only initially at salvation through justification when we believe, but continuously, watch this, as we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember, we studied that verse. So that's part of our sanctification. Look at that, 1 John 1, and if we confess our sins, that means if we agree with God about our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We don't need a bath. We had that at salvation, at justification. But we do need cleansing, ongoing cleansing, and that happens with confession. That's why Christians always confess their sins and receive this ongoing cleansing that Jesus provides when we confess. Now, I want you to notice that because verse 5 is true of our lives, that Jesus takes away our sins initially and then ongoing through confession, John then makes a powerful statement, a dogmatic statement that is also true about our lives. Look at verse 6. No one who lives in him, that's a Christian, keeps on sinning. The keeps on sinning is the present continuous tense. No one, in other words, you could read it this way. No one who lives in him, who claims that they're a Christian, keeps on continuously, habitually, all the time sinning. Then he says, no one who continues to sin, continually, habitually, has either seen him or known him. In other words, because of Jesus' ongoing work in our lives, initially at salvation, and all the time in sanctification because we are confessing our sin, we live in him. We know him. The result is that we are not now continuously, habitually sinning. If we continually, consistently, all the time sin, this would give evidence that Jesus has never taken away our sins initially, and he's not doing it right now. Because we're always sinning. And that is not congruent with eternal life. You cannot be a Christian and keep on continuously, habitually sinning and sinning and sinning again and again and again in the same way that, 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 that contradicts what the Bible teaches about salvation. That would share you don't know him. So why do we as Christians tend toward doing what is right, living a righteous life like Jesus because we're nice in and of ourselves, or we have the strength to somehow choose a righteous life? No. <laughs> it's because of Jesus' ongoing work in our life. It's because of his grace, because of his strength. He takes away our sins, and this is a continuous, ongoing experience. Yes, we sin. Christians sin. But not all the time. Not consistently. Same day, same thing, all the time. We confess our sins. But why? Do we do what is right, like Jesus, because of Jesus' ongoing work in our lives? Now, let me illustrate this for you. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Turn to the left and find the book of 1 Timothy. And here we have a testimony. We have a story about a man, and his story is just like yours. You have a testimony. And this man, before he was known as Paul, he was known as what? Saul. And Saul, he used to be a lawbreaker. Lawlessness dominated his life. And yet something happened. God's grace appeared. He was born again. He found eternal life. And he became a new person. And this is his story. It's your story. You can relate to this story if you have eternal life. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 
and following. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you are right here this morning. You're going, I thank Jesus for what he's done in my life because I'm not who I used to be. He's given me strength. You should have used to see me. I was a lawbreaker, lawlessness. But now Jesus has given me strength. I used to be owned by sin, habitually ingrained deep in my life. But he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul used to, Saul used to kill Christians. He was there at the first martyr of Stephen. This guy was a lawbreaker, even though he's a religious lawbreaker. Lawbreakers come in all sorts of different forms. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe. Wow. Why could Paul write this? Because of Jesus' ongoing work in him. Why can you write your story? Because of Jesus' ongoing work in you. He's taken away your sins constantly. And in that, you are emerging into this example where people look at you and they go, you're no longer who you used to be dominated by sin. Yeah, you still struggle with sin, but it's becoming less and less. And Jesus is showing up more and more. That's because you have eternal life. People with eternal life, goodness, righteousness, Christ-likeness, choosing what is right over wrong begins to show up more and more and more. This is what Jesus does. He takes the worst of sinners. They look to the cross. He forgives them initially. He cleanses them continuously, and they become more and more like Jesus. That's your story if you know Christ. And I want you to talk about your story at your tables right now. How is Jesus making an ongoing difference in your life. Take a moment, talk about that. All right, we're looking at two reasons. Two reasons why Christians reveal that they have eternal life because they do what is right. The first, we do what is right because of Jesus' ongoing work in our lives, cleansing us from sin, moving us toward a righteous life. Second, we do what is right because we are God's child. Now, question, why do Christians tend toward doing what is right? The answer is because our nature has been changed, transformed. I mean totally, completely altered. I remember as a kid when my mom was born again. Mama wasn't planning on sharing this. But I remember when she experienced eternal life because she put her faith in Jesus, her whole life was absolutely transformed before me. Transformed. And became a person like Jesus. Why do Christians do what is right? Why do they live a righteous, Christ-like life? Because they have the strength, because they're, they're religious, they pick their own, themselves up by their own bootstraps? No, it's Jesus. He totally changes, alters our nature. We're no longer who we used to be. We are a new person. A child of God is an amazing thing to say, if it's true about your life. Now, I want to share with you something very revealing. I used to be a child of the devil. Let me share with you something equally shocking. You used to be, 
a child of the devil. Wow. You see, that's the terms the Bible uses to describe someone who is a non-Christian. That's what God says used to be our nature before salvation. Now, on the other side of salvation, the other side of eternal life, you are a child of God. You have a new nature. And this new nature gives you the power and the desire to watch this. Choose that which is right over that which is evil. Now, look if you would at verse 7. We're going to get into this. John says, dear children. Now, he's talking to children whose nature has been altered. And then he gives a warning. He says, do not let anyone lead you astray. I wonder, is this warning for anyone here this morning or someone watching on video? Is there someone in your life trying to lead you astray? A coworker? Are you married? Is there a gal? Is there a guy trying to lead you astray from your marriage? Is there a boyfriend, a girlfriend trying to take advantage of you? Is someone trying to lead you astray? This is often how Christians get led into sin. And then John says something very powerful. He gives a statement about righteousness that is true. He says there in verse 7, He who does what is righteous is righteous. He who does what is right is righteous just as he, Jesus, is righteous. In other words, you find someone uh, who does something uh, like Jesus, well, that's a righteous act. That's practical righteousness being lived out. And then John reveals for us the primary reason why people do what is sinful. I mean, why do people do that which is continuously sinful, evil, crossing the line of God's standard? Why do people lie and deceive and rob and murder and betray and rape? If it's true what Bill Cosby has done to women, I find that beyond comprehension almost. And yet we see these sorts of things taking place day after day after day in the news and in homes across the United States. Why? Do people do that which is evil? And First John answers us the question, goes to the core of the, ant, the issue. Verse 8, he who does what is sinful is of the what? That is, their nature is of the devil. Satan is real. God, if you believe in God, you must believe in Satan. One-third of the angels are Satan's demons. Demons are real. Are you kidding me? Halloween, we make such a joke. But, but there is a true spiritual force of evil that exists that is very real. In the United States, the, the, the devil seeks to uh, convince people, our country, that he doesn't exist. You go to Africa, you go almost anywhere else in the world, his job there is to convince people that he does exist. But in the United States, we're a little more sophisticated. We have materialism. We don't worship Satan like they do elsewhere. At least we claim one nation under God. Most of us, most, the majority still worship God in our nation. And he just wants to make sure that we think he's just a phantom, a mirage. But he is absolutely real. Absolutely. And John is saying the reason people do evil, because they have an evil, satanic nature. Now, you don't hear that a whole lot today in the news, do you? But that's what the Bible says. You see, according to John, according to the Bible, there are only two types of people in the world, two categories of natures in the world. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. You're either a believer 
or an unbeliever. You either know Jesus or you don't. You have eternal life or you don't. There's no in-between. You are a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You are one or the other. There is no in-between. You are owned by one or the other. You must serve someone. And you're owned by someone. Now, why does a person continually do what is evil? They're of the devil. That's their nature. One commentator said this. He said, just as a Christian lives under the influence of God living in him, so do sinners live under the influence of the devil and allow themselves to be seduced by him. Just as he who is born of God does what God does, so the children of the devil can only do what their father wants. You see, a child takes on the character of their daddy. If you hang around me, you're going to find out like I'm like my daddy in a lot of ways. A little bit better looking than my dad, but, you know, he knew it was coming. He's a good-looking man. But, you know, as a child, you take on the character of your daddy. You know, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. We just need to spend a little time here because I want you to see that this in 1 John comes from Jesus' own teaching about the nature of man. This is just so misunderstood in our culture today. And the implications are huge. John 8, Jesus is having a lively discussion with religious leaders, the Pharisees, who were not believers. They were religious. And, and he takes this head on. And in John 8, 42, just listen to these words. I wish I had the time to teach on this, but I don't. Just let it speak for itself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but, the, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. See, the reason an unbeliever can't hear the Bible, can't understand God's word, or understand God is because they belong to the devil. Wow. The reason a Christian can understand the Bible and actually hear God is because you belong to God. You're his child. You can hear his voice. A child simply takes on the character of their father, Satan. And so Satan is a continuous sinner. So those who are children of Satan continuously, constantly sin. That is their nature. And they display it that way. Question, why do Christians not continually sin? They are of God. They're born of God. And their nature is to repel sin. God always does that which is righteous and righteous and right, and therefore the children of God tend toward that direction as well. John then tells us what Jesus did for us so that we could be set free from the devil's sinful influence over our lives. And this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It's so powerful. If you've never seen it, let me explain it to you. Look at verse 8. It says this, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, this is why Jesus came, was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy, that word destroy 
is the Greek word luo. It means to set free. It means to loosen or to free up. And he set free, watch this, the devil's work in your life. I remember that day in my life. I remember when I embraced Jesus as my Savior and Lord, the freedom that came in my soul from being a person enslaved into sin, all of a sudden set free. It was unbelievable. It was the most powerful, awesome moment in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for setting me free. Years ago, before I uh, knew the Lord, or sensed that, you know, I didn't know Christ, I was uh, a landscaper, and I was, uh, I was assigned to a job to go to a home, and there was a, an oak tree in, in this person's front yard. It was a massive oak tree, but the oak tree was literally dying. And the reason the oak tree was dying, there was kind of a, a widow that lived there, and she couldn't really, she didn't have the means to upkeep her yard. But the, the whole front yard was full of vines. And these vines had been there for years, and the oak tree for years, and these vines had wrapped around the base of this tree and actually up the tree. But at the base of this tree, the vi- these vines were massive, and they had, they had fastened around this oak tree and were literally sucking the life out of this oak tree, and it was dying. And my job was to go there and to, to, to literally cut, sever those vines at the base. And as I did that, the whole power of those vines was loosened and allowed that, fruit, that tree to literally flourish without being in, un, encumbered. Jesus, you see, has set you free from not, you know, from the penalty of sin, yes, and also from the power of sin, but yet not yet the presence of sin. Because you're in a body, in a sin-cursed world, you feel the vines around you, don't you, of our culture. Sin is around us, but guess what? It's present, but it's lost its power. It's been cut. There is no power of sin for the Christian's life. You have been set free. It's been severed, and as more time goes by, as a Christian, you're becoming, the, the, the more and more of the life of Jesus is rising up within you because of God's sanctifying work in your life. Paul said, Romans, uh, Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So we now have freedom to say no to sin and yes to righteousness because we have been set free. Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Because Jesus has defeated Satan's work on the cross and in our lives, also verse 9 is true of us. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Why do we not go on continuously, habitually sinning like we did before we knew Jesus? We're born of God. We have a new nature. God's seed has been planted in us. Yes, like the sperm of a man and a woman. This is the picture. God's seed, eternal life, has been planted in your being. You are not who you used to be. You've been born anew as a Christian. You have God's life in you. That life gives us power to overcome sin. We are not dominated by sin. We're not slaves of sin any longer. If we are slaves of sin, if we're dominated by sin, we don't have God's seed in us. That's the whole point of 1 John. 
I mean, 1 Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. God's seed is his presence. It's his power. It's his Holy Spirit. Being born again as a child of God results in a radical alteration of our human nature. Those who are not born again, beloved, sin is natural. When I didn't know Jesus, sin was absolutely natural. When you're born again, sin is unnatural. That doesn't mean you don't sin, but it's not natural. Do Christians sin? Yes. Do Christians habitually, continuously, day after day sin? No. A genuine believer has a a built-in check-in or guard against habitual sinning due to his or her nature. God's seed remains in us. He's given us power. Now, Ray Steadman says something that I think is just the ultimate wonderful test because I think you could listen to this and maybe come to, well, the Holy Spirit will guard the conclusion you're going to make over your own lives because we all sin. I sin. You sin. We all sin. But I'll tell you, God's Word is very clear. If we go on continuously, habitually sinning, that shows we don't have eternal life. But Ray Steadman says this. He says, if you can live content with evil without a struggle, deliberately doing what God's Word declares is not right, if you can go on and it doesn't bother you, you have no right to call yourself a Christian. I think that hits it right on the head. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is there convicting you of sin and you confess your sin. Some of you have come to me in private moments and you have, you've so, you've humbly come broken and you've confessed your sin to me and asked, have asked for prayer. No non-Christian would ever do that. You are saved. Do not let Satan condemn you in this message. The fact that you are here listening to this right now so quietly, <laughs> you're saved. This book was written to convince you that you are saved. If you have a sensitive spirit, and you're like, Holy Spirit, I want to grow. I want to become. That is of eternal life, beloved. Oh, I want to communicate this. All the verbs, by the way, in uh, this passage related to sin are in the present continuous tense. I mean, you have to understand that when you read this, it's in the Greek. So, you know, this is not referring to occasional acts of sin or even willful acts of sin, but to establish continual patterns of sinful behavior that habitually persist as a way of life, sinful, ongoing lifestyle with no no regard for God's law, disregard for God's law, without any thought of God's law, no conviction regarding God's law. Sin is lawlessness, a spirit of, I just don't give a rip, this is how I'm going to live. That's not a Christian. Continuous sin is incompatible with eternal life. That's what verse 9 says. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. I've given you all sorts of verses there in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24. 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. By the way, would you underline new creation? 
I wish I had the time to do a word study on that. That word we get in the Greek, metamorphosis. That, that's the, the idea of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Remember fourth grade, third grade, whatever it was for some of us? That was high school. I don't know. <laughs> Remember that? See, that's the picture. You have literally gone from caterpillar, dominated by Satan, ugly, grotesque, tending, tending towards sin, habitual sin, to a butterfly, freed. You're a new person, a child of God. You're able to choose righteousness now. That doesn't mean you live a perfect life, but it means that you're moving in the direction of being like Jesus. Habitual, ongoing sin, that's a thing that caterpillars do. Question, how do we know if someone is a child of God or a child of the devil? I mean, you can't be in both families at the same time. You're either in the family of God or in the family of the devil. What reveals someone's true spiritual family? John tells us, we end in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. See, a child of God will tend toward doing what is right. What does that mean? That means living like Jesus. What does that practically look like, Jesus? If you take your Bible and you like open the Bible and you start reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you, and you follow Jesus' life around, if you're becoming more like Jesus, you're born again. You have eternal life. If you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm becoming more like Jesus, you have eternal life. If you're becoming more like Satan, well, you probably don't have eternal life. That, that's really what this vital sign is all about. A child of the devil will tend toward displaying a pattern of continuous sinning. You say, what does that look like? Let me get specific. Turn back in your Bibles to Galatians. First and Corinthians, go to Galatians, and let's just look specifically at the character of someone who does not have eternal life. And then also the character of someone who does. Galatians 5, 19, the acts of the sinful nature. Here's a person with a caterpillar nature. They've not been born again, so to speak. The acts of the sinful nature, someone without eternal life, are obvious, sexual immorality. Is that part of your life? That, that characterizes someone who doesn't know Jesus. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, they give evidence through their character that they're not born again. You say, well, what does a person look like who does have eternal life? They're becoming more like Jesus, doing what is right. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that you? Well, that gives evidence that you have eternal life. Why do Christians tend toward doing what is good? Because they are just so good in and of themselves. No, God has done a miracle in your life. You and I are no longer who we used to be. We are now a child of God. We become a butterfly. We've been transformed, our nature. God's seed has planted us, and we're becoming more and more like our Father and like His Son. Not perfect, but we're becoming more. And, and that is characterizing our lives more and more and more, and that gives evidence we have eternal life. You know, I've been reading a book here just recently called Miraculous Movements. It's an incredible book because 
the, the caption is how hundreds of thousands of Muslims are falling in love with Jesus. We don't hear this story. You know, often Islam is, you know, for many Christians, our enemy. They're not our enemy. They're people who are lost. And this book account, d details how many Muslims, thousands and millions of Muslims, are disheartened, they're discouraged, and they're depressed by what they see and what they're experiencing in their religion. They're not children of God. They're lost. We need to pray. And yet, this is a book, and there are others, that recount just how hundreds and thousands of Muslims are turning to Jesus because they meet the Savior, and it transforms their lives. So there's this one account I just thought I'd read this to you. And there's a group of two missionaries that are following up on one kind of missionary, a church planner, and they come back to check up on him. And the church planner, uh, the missionary says, hey, follow me, I want to take you to a meeting and show you what I've been doing. And the guys go, okay. So they go on a walk with the guy. They think it's going to be around the corner. It takes two hours to get in the middle of wilderness where they're like, find this meeting. And so this is where it picks up. The three men entered the hut, and Ahmed, one of the missionaries, stopped dead in his tracks. Huddled inside was a group of some 30 men. All were dressed in desert camouflage, and all were heavily, heavily armed. Several of the men had automatic rifles in their hands or within reach. Most had ammo belts draped across their shoulder, and all had unwelcomed eyes focusing toward the strangers. Ahmed recognized the men as a group of rebels whom the Western press would term freedom fighters, but, most, uh, but whom most Africans know as dangerous bandits. Had Ahmed known in advance that these men would be here, he would never have agreed to come. But Wazim, kind of the, uh, their pupil, simply beamed his smile once more, then sat down next to the rebel leader, and he opened his Bible, and he begins reading the Bible. And at the end of reading that passage, the rebel leader blinked through his tears, then started to laugh. And he said to Ahmed, one of the missionaries, you don't have to be afraid, my friends, he said, gesturing toward the fearful countenance of the two church planters. You're in the safest place in the region. The entire band broke out into laughter as Wazim translated, many nodding in agreement as they hefted their loaded weapons. My brother... The rebel leader said in a serious tone, Our friend, pointing to Wazim, has been reading the word of God to us, and it has changed our lives. He glanced around the hut at his comrades. We have been changed. We used to do all the stealing and the other things, but now, he says this, we are children of God. God transforming the nature of a Muslim to be God's child. This is what he did in your life when you were a rebel, and I was a rebel. He changes our nature. That's why we choose and follow Jesus, because we are a new person. I want you to talk about this. How did your life change when you became a child of God? Take a moment and go for it. All right, guys. So this morning, bottom lining it, we've looked at the eighth spiritual vital sign that indicates we have eternal life. How do we know we have eternal life? We just tend 
as Christians, when we have eternal life, toward doing what is right more and more versus doing what is wrong more and more. That's the bottom line. We're on a trajectory. I mean, if you were to chart your spiritual life, you know, is it going up toward becoming more like Jesus? That's what eternal life does. And you know, Bible says we should examine our lives. That's what 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? These are, these are tests, very important for us to take. You should be going, yes, you know, this is my life. I tend toward doing what is right. I'm not dominated by sin and lawlessness. Christ has set me free. Is that your life? I trust it is. It's all because of Jesus, His ongoing work in our lives. And it's all because we become a child of God with a new nature a new power to choose following Jesus. First John was written to give us assurance that we would know with absolute certainty that we have eternal life. So if doing what is right rather than habitual sinfulness characterizes your life, you can know you have eternal life. If doing what is right does not characterize your life, I mean, boy, you are just enslaved to sin. Habitual sin dominates your life. Great news. Come to Jesus today. I mean, if I was listening to this before I was born again, I'd go, man, that was my life. Dominated by sin. In need of a Savior to set me free. To literally cut the cords of sin that were entangling my life. To set me free so Jesus' life could rise within me. That's what Jesus does as we believe in Him. Let's pray.